and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. My name is Jack Benyon, American editor at The Race, and joining me as ever is my trusty co-host, J.R. Hildebrand. J.R., how much did you enjoy the last episode we did with your pal, Joseph Newgarden? Well, you know what, man? It was great just to be back on, and uh, being able to chat with Joseph was a was a fun way to do it, so ready to rock and roll, ready for the season to start. You're right. That was our first podcast back in 2022. So make sure you go back and listen to that as Joseph provides a fascinating insight into the inner workings of Team Penske, his thoughts on North American-based drivers getting to F1 and on the loss of his race engineer, Gavin Ward, formerly of Red Bull, and now of Aaron McLaren SP, which we'll get to later on. So last week, we promised you a special episode on everything you need to know ahead of the 2022 season. So here we go. We're going to start with the driver and team changes. So I'm going to rattle through these and then JR and I are going to run through them as well together. So Penske drops from four cars to three as Joseph Newgarden, Will Power and Scott McLaughlin will no longer be partnered by Simon Pagano, who joins Indy 500 winners, My Shrank Racing, alongside the now full-time driver, Helio Castroneves. That sounds a bit weird to say out loud. Andretti has two changes with Roman Grosjean and Devlin Francesco replacing Ryan Hunter-Ray and James Hinchcliffe. Hunter Ray will race sports cars and Hinchcliffe replaces Paul Tracy on the TV commentary this year. And it's also a big year coming up for the other two Andretti drivers, Colton Herter and Alexander Rossi. I'm sure we'll get into that later as well. Grosjean is replaced at Coin, as is his teammate from last year, Ed Jones, by Takuma Sato and rookie David Malukas. Fassa Sullivan have taken a hiatus from the series, having run the car driven by Jones last year for the past four seasons. So Bassa Sullivan's ex-driver, Sebastian Bourdais, has left AJ Foyt. He's heading to IMSA with Ganassi and will be replaced by ace rookie Kyle Kirkwood alongside fellow newcomer Tatiana Calderon. Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan expands to three full-time entries with Jack Harvey, who moves across from Maya Schrenk, and rookie Christian Lungard, who joins Graham Ray Hall in the team. And before we move on, we should also mention Jimmy Johnson because he's gone full-time and he'll join Grosjean in making a big Indy 500 debut, which I'm sure is going to be really cool. So, JR, out of all of the, the key changes we've seen in terms of the drives and teams across the off-season at the end of 2021 and going into 2022, what excites you the most? What have, what have you enjoyed? What are the storylines you've liked from, from this off-season? Well, I think that we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I think that the the new lineup at Andretti is the most interesting new dynamic. There's just, there's so much firepower there now. And, but it remains to be seen sort of how everybody's, how everybody gels together, how everybody gets along, how the engineering groups work. Uh, Andretti among the big three teams was sort of the most um, just inconsistent, even between the four cars on the team, I felt like last year. So they were sort of inconsistent as a group just track to track across the season. Certainly when you compared them to the other bigger Honda team in Ganassi, Ganassi just showed up everywhere and seemed like at least two of the cars were really solid. Uh, there was, there was a clear sort of consistency and, and perspective that they had on getting through weekends and, uh, and everything that goes along with that. Andretti was all over the place. It was rare that they had nobody who was in the top five or 10, you know, in qualifying or, or the race, but somewhat frequent it seems like looking back at it just re-remembering the season um you know that they might have somebody that running in the top five and all three other cars were outside the top 15 or something so uh, i think that's the most interesting dynamic just all the way around um we obviously know that simon and elio kind of play a part in that so it'll be interesting just to see how that dynamic 
you know, we, we very much viewed Jack Harvey in the full-time shank car last year, just to be a part of the Andretti squad. Now that there's two more, you know, there's two drivers instead of one that are going to be full-time in that, uh, you know, sort of situation in that scenario, I guess, um, as this sort of connected satellite program with Meyer shank. And those two drivers in particular, Pagano and, and Elio, who come from a long period of time, each at Team Penske, they very much have their own, you know, Jack is sort of a young guy coming up through the ranks. You know, I guess in my mind, I could see, I could see just not even thinking about these specific personalities, but a driver in that position, is just going to kind of fall into line a little bit more in terms of the way that the dynamic of that, you know, structure works uh, in a good way. I think, um, Simon and Elio, I don't know. I could, I could just see that being different. These guys are both, you know, Indy 500 winners. Uh, Simon's a, you know, a series champion. Elio's won a bunch of right. You know, he has, he very much has his own way of doing things. So, um, just that whole group, Andretti by itself to start with, but then if you include Meyer Shank as a component of the Andretti sort of family in IndyCar, uh, that's a pretty, there's going to be a lot going on there. I also think as a secondary, you know, interesting story is just going to be Ray Hall Letterman and, and where they, where they end up, where they, how, where they, how they start out, you know, does, is Jack an improvement in, in any obvious ways over Taku in terms of just the team dynamic, in terms of what they bring to the table week in and week out? How does Christian fit into that? You know, is there a, he was quick right away in his debut at IMS on the road course last year, but, you know, sort of worked his way backwards during the race. You know, there's some question marks there just in terms of what he's, where he's at and what he brings to the table week in and week out. Graham had an awesome season. Does he improve? Does he, is that something that he carries over? Can they improve their qualifying pace? You know, do they vault themselves into, um, you know, legitimate championship contention? So for me, those are, those are the two, you know, larger organizations that I've sort of got my eye on that could, could do something really special this year. And we just don't really, we don't really know. Yeah. It's a really interesting team dynamic and team lineup. Like there's so much momentum there after the, the 2020 Indy 500 win with Takuma Sato and then the new factory that they're, they're in the process of building and, and should be in sort of halfway or, or three quarters through this year as well. So, so much momentum behind that team and so many good decisions happening behind the scenes, but arguably the one thing that they won't manage to do last year was, was win a race and they've signed two drivers. One's a rookie. So he obviously hasn't won a race. Jack Carvey, um, you know, he's obviously not won a race either in, in the two seasons, the two full seasons that he's had in, in IndyCar as well. Um, you know, a lot of people would argue that's because he's not had the opportunity, but you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a gamble of a driver lineup in my opinion, but has a lot of the elements that they're looking for in terms of, I'm sure Jack Harvey will be able to elevate the the qualifying performance there. And also Christian Lungard's got this, you know, he's coming with a European style that's been so popular over the, the last couple of season in, in seasons in IndyCar. A lot of the the kind of tyre preparation on the road courses that we've seen is is quite European in style. And we've seen even people like Scott Dixon talking about wanting to to replicate that. So I think Christian's going to come with some new ideas and, and really refresh that lineup as well. So as you said, it's going to be a really interesting one to watch. I think one of the things I'm most excited about for 2022 
is Aaron McLaren SP poaching Joseph Newgarden's Penske engineer Gavin Ward with Newgarden likely to have ex Pratt Miller program manager Eric Likely on his car. I hope I pronounced, pronounced that right, Eric. I can't even pronounce pronounce. So that's a, that's an interesting uh, start to that one. But who wins out of this reshuffle for you, JR? We, we heard from Joseph on last week's episode. If you've not heard that, go back and listen to it. He talked a little bit about how. He's looking forward to having some people on his car who maybe have more IndyCar experience and more oval experience than, than Gavin Ward had. But he said it was, uh, he said without a doubt, Gavin Ward was a, a loss to his program. So um, do you see um, Newgarden's comments about kind of being refreshed here and having something different um, as as comments that are, that are likely to come to fruition? Or do you think he's trying to see the positives in this situation and that it's going to be a, a big loss um, in the in that camp for next year or this year? Yeah, I think it's, I'm not sure that I would characterize it as a big loss just because we know that Team Penske has a lot of, that they they do operate well as a group and they've got, so he's, they've, they've got sort of some, they've got a foundation to fall back on there in terms of where they want to take the, the engineering of the cars. And if it does indeed end up turning out that Eric is Joseph's, you know, like on the stand primary engineer. Eric is a really smart dude who's been around IndyCar for a long time and definitely knows his way around everything that's going on. So there's going to be a bit of a break-in period there, um, like Joseph alluded to. But Joseph knows where he's knows what he needs. The car has not dramatically changed in any particular way over the last couple of years. So I think those guys probably feel confident that. They've got a good starting point wherever they go. I think Team Penske also has a pretty, uh, you know, you go to a lot of teams or when you think about the way that a lot of teams operate, you know, not everybody has a really well-defined sort of starting point or just philosophy for why they are setting the cars up the way that they are necessarily. Um, And Team Penske does definitely have that just whether it's whether it always works or not there's a method to the madness there that i think is what's allowed for joseph to be so successful with these kind of engineering changes over the years and i would expect that to fall into place here as well but all of that being said um this is a loss for a loss for him certainly in the short term um and a definite gain for one of their biggest competitors who's on the come up in Arrow McLaren SP. So you have to say that they sort of won this, won this trade or won this, uh, you know, transaction. So, you know, I, I, I mean, it, it also, it, to some degree, it puts Arrow McLaren SP in a position where it's like, there's kind of no more excuses. You know, these guys, they were right on the cusp this last year. Um, so they showed that as an organization, they can bring that degree of development and uh, resource to the table. Pato is totally in the window. Felix, I think it frankly is too. He knows that he's got to have kind of a bounce back year here. Um, He's definitely got the skill. It seemed like towards the end of the year last year, he found, they found some things that worked better for him. Um, And so that's, you know, that's, that's just the positioning. These, these two squads are at the top of the heap of the sort of Chevrolet contenders and anybody on either of these teams potentially, uh, has it in them to take it to the front every weekend. Yeah, we should mention uh, Gavin Ward will, will fulfill uh, a kind of technical director role overseeing the the two Aaron McLaren SP cars there. And the person who used to have that role, Craig Hampson, who many people will know listening to the podcast, will join Felix Rosenquist as his engineer for this season. So another thing feeding into your kind of comments on, on Felix there, 
as you said, you know, he knows that he needs to, to have a big year. So uh, maybe Craig Hampson's going to be um, a big part of that and, and helping Felix to, to take a step forward. I personally, I'm not convinced that that the likes of Gavin and Craig are, are going to be able to have a massive impact immediately just because of how little testing we've been able to have. And, you know, I think these guys are going to take a little bit of time to bed in, but I think maybe, you know, as we uh, kind of get past the, the Indy 500, maybe even at the 500, we'll see them starting to, to really earn their keep and, and help this team drive forward. I guess the other big engineering change we should mention is one that has not been talked about for, for a while, but because it happened so early in the in the kind of silly season was um, that Olivier Boisson has moved across to Andretti from Coin with Grosjean. So that's, uh, I guess, the other kind of big name change we should kind of mention. We should also sort of talk about the the fact that the cogs are already turning for 2023, which sounds maybe a bit silly to do on an episode that is previewing 2022, but there's so many drivers here whose performances in, in 2022 could dictate where they end up in 2023. And that is immediately, as it always is, going to become a storyline really early in, in 2022, isn't it, JR? Is there any of those drivers who um, that, that we know that the contracts are expiring that you're really you know, keeping a keen eye on in, in 2022 to see uh, what, what happens and how they develop? I mean, I think they, they may not be the only guys that are in the spot by the end of the year, but uh, Alexander Rossi and Rian CBK are the two that really come to mind. Uh, I'm particularly interested to see just what happens with, with Alexander. We've heard some various kind of rumors about, about where he would, where he's intending to be, even some, some discussion about that already being sort of predetermined at this point, um, which I won't even go into because I just find that hard to believe, but um, you know, he's, he's, he's got the most interesting season here in that he's, he's got the stiffest in team competition, whereas Renus like doesn't have, he's just on his own. He's just got to go a bit, a little bit like Renus is in a similar situation to where Joseph was at in 2016 at ECR. Like he's got to just go out and do his thing to prove that he should be in legitimately in the conversation to be an extra Penske car or, you know, whatever, wherever that might end up being to, to take a step up the grid somewhere. Um, Alexander is already at one of these teams. He's going to have Grosjean and Colton Herta to compete against. Um, And why, why he, if he has a really good year, that makes it even more interesting. Like if you've got a really good year, let's say he goes and wins the championship why would you jump ship at that stage from, from Andretti? But it sort of seems like that might be where he's headed. If that happens, you know, he's been sort of rumored to be heading to Ganassi or, or thinking in that direction. So, um, you know, as another young, as a young American guy, it's, it's been talked about at Penske for a long time, you know, since he came into the series, basically like that's never not an option. Uh, just knowing the way that, that Roger operates. So, uh, I think that's the most he's he's in the most complicated scenario if he has a good season heading towards the end of this year. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And you mentioned Penske. Obviously, that was such a big storyline before he signed his current Andretti contract, whether he was going to switch to Penske then or stay with Andretti. And that was such a, a massive story. And at that point, he felt like he had so much momentum behind him, Alexander Rossi, and was the, the kind of star of that silly season. And then you know, we, we fast forward two years and he hasn't won a race and he's he's facing a, a kind of make or break season where he's almost finding that he needs to to prove himself again all over again. So a really interesting proposition for this year. And you mentioned Renus VK at the top there. I think he's a really interesting, uh, you know, there's a really interesting dynamic there because we've seen 
what he's able to do when he's on form and, and hits his peak. We've seen him win a race and, and, and be really strong at, at Carpenter Racing, but also we've seen a lot of inconsistency from him as well. So, you know, he's a, a person who has already been linked to the likes of, of Penske as well and already been talked about as a, a strong contender for the, the 2023 silly season market, if you like. So if he can win another race this year and, and, and trend forward and continue to... To, to be as strong as he was maybe in the first half of, of last season, then he's going to be a, a really big player on the market too. We're going to switch up now and take a look at the rule changes ahead of this year or some of the significant ones anyway. Let's start with the one that isn't happening. The qualifying format remains the same on the road courses. There was talk that it could change with an increase in entries, but a few extra cars haven't come to fruition. So there's no need to discuss that one and make any changes there. So that one's covered off. In 2021, we went from five testing days to four and that shrunk again in, in 2022. That's perhaps why we're seeing some teams be more aggressive with using the kind of separate evaluation tests. And uh, we've seen more experienced drivers come in and drive like Kevin Magnussen testing for Ganassi last week. Some people will be interested to see. We had Dane Cameron at Penxy as well, which I know you were excited about, JR, uh, which was which was interesting to see. But more, I think, from the teams using the time on track with with limited testing as opposed to, to those two drivers being linked to uh, the, the seats immediately anyway. Uh, we should move on. IndyCar is set to introduce electronic LED light panels like those seen in series like Formula One. Um, so the yellow and red flags can be signaled via boards or LED boards. Uh, Linking to this is also going to be more information available to the drivers on the dash as well, which is a nice safety change. So hopefully that's going to make uh, an improvement. It's also a number of tracks where Firestone will bring updated tie compounds that would be a surprise to any regular IndyCar fans, but also there's some tracks likely to be repaved before IndyCar reaches them later in the year, which will be a cause for future intrigue. And that tied into the tyre compound situation will be very interesting to watch. On the car itself, Dallara and IndyCar have signed a new multi-year deal, which should cover the building of the next chassis. Indeed, Dallara is understood to have started work on that on already. And sticking with the car, there's more aerodynamic options that should be available to drivers on the ovals. Uh, a barge board similar to those used at Indy uh, will be available at Texas, which they were tested at Texas last year, but not used in the race weekend. So they're going to be available, supposedly. And a different version of those barge boards will be available at Iowa and Gateway as well. JR, do you think these aero devices uh, will be in use at the, the non-Indy circuits? Will the teams use them? And do you think they'll impact the racing much? Or do you see this more as like a you know, a nice option for the teams to have, but something that isn't going to change things massively. I'd expect them to get used. I mean, definitely at Indy last year, once you got, once you kind of figured out they're very ride height sensitive, these barge boards, and it's really just like a little, you know, if you think, if you're thinking Formula One barge board, it's, it's nothing like that. It's nothing that significant in terms of what it is. It's just an extension off the front of the floor. Basically it's like a, you know, maybe it's a 12 inch long part that's, you know, two inches in height. Uh, that sort of sticks out off the front of the floor, just redirects airflow under the front of the floor section. It's if you get the car in the right ride height window, it's just additional downforce in sort of total for the car. So uh, it's these are being introduced or or brought into the fold um, to maybe improve the quality of the racing a little bit. You know, we've had at these places. We've gone from the aero kit cars, which ended in 2017, being very high downforce at all of these tracks, even in uh, of a low drag trim. They just were really efficient from that perspective uh, to now the cars 
being really low downforce. Uh, and, and along with that, the, you know, track surfaces have degraded. And so the track surface itself is just kind of low grip at, at all three of these places we're discussing, Texas, Iowa, and at Gateway, sort of from where they once were. So with all of that in mind, I think the the idea at least is to allow not certainly not getting these are not going to make a huge difference in terms of you know you're not going to get a lot of too wide racing where it used to just be single file or something like that but I think the idea is to try to just like they've made these changes for the Indy 500 is to try to make it so that you know maybe instead of it being difficult to follow a car from eight car lengths back you can get five car lengths back, or if it's been five car lengths to get to three car lengths, just to make it so that, uh, that when you are in the window and you do, and your car is actually handling better than the car in front of you, um, and you can place it a little bit better through the corner and get that run, you know, at the exit of, you know, turn four or turn two at any of these places that you can actually do something with that. That's been the tricky part, you know, talking to drivers and watching the races, um, at the two short ovals and at Texas is just, even when you've had better stuff and you've been able to do something with it, it's not been enough in a lot of circumstances to really, to make a move or to work your way up through a pack, which is, uh, you know, part of a big part of what makes IndyCar oval racing interesting at the end of the day. So I think that's, that's at least the intention here. Like I said, they're not going to make a huge difference, but I think you'll, you'll see them come into play. You'll see team, you certainly see teams playing around with them. I expect to see teams using them. And, um, just based on the experience that, that we all had at Indy last year, everybody ran them in the race at the 500. So, um, I think that's, you know, I wouldn't expect to see huge change from a, from the, from a you know, fan's perspective, but, uh, you know, definitely an improvement in the racing when we get to those places by a little bit. I think it seems now there's no golden bullet with the car where, you know, some of the issues you mentioned there, like maybe, uh, wanting, uh, too wide racing where it's only possible for one you know i think the teams and drivers are realistic enough to know that that's not going to be solved by you know some some small things i think what what we could take away from this is that it's good that indycar are bringing you know at least trying to bring different options and giving the teams you know different things that they can use and and just trying to open things up a little bit which is always a positive for any series in my opinion but before we may move away from the car uh, we'll add that this is the last season of the current engine produced in 2012, so it's the last chance for Honda and Chevrolet to win. Uh, Chevrolet assigned Ray Gosselin, Ryan Hunter's engineer, uh, the Honda-powered Andretti team, but Ray is also an ex-Ilmore employee, so there's kind of a, a tenuous link there. It'll be interesting to see if he can head up the refreshed Chevrolet effort, which is looking to focus more on the sum of the parts of the whole car with his engineering efforts in a bid to beat Honda. So that's going to be a really interesting topic. JR, any um, any insight there? Is there anything we can uh, expect? I mean, a lot of people will be thinking that this is kind of a, let's call it a dead year where there's not a lot to to kind of win, but neither Honda or Chevrolet are standing still, are they? So there's still uh, there's still a lot to, to prove and, and still some small gains to be made here. Yeah, I can say for sure that Chevy and Honda both, certainly on the Chevy side, uh, which is, you know, where, where my sort of... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say allegiance necessarily, but just where my rides have been for a long time. So I'm pretty close with those guys. Um, you know, they're, they're head down to win an Indy 500 this year and win a championship. You know, I mean, every year counts when it comes to these things, Honda has been bringing the heat the last bunch of years. They've definitely, I think, I think people objectively would, you know, you could say have had the leg up at in those two respects. So 
there's not a lot to be gained with the 2.2 liter formula at this point. The architectures are sort of fixed. There's very little that they can change. But I think one of the interesting things that a guy like Ray brings to the fold is not only for Chevrolet, knowing a little bit about, you know, he's bring some insights just in terms of what Honda has been doing. You know, that's not going to, like I said, that's not going to in an off season translate to them fundamentally changing the way that they build the engines or do anything like that. But he does bring some insight into just the processes by which Honda and HPD have gone about their development and even just, you know, simple things like I imagine that there's differences in terms of how they correlate their on-track data with what they're doing on the dyno with, you know, what they're doing in a simulation environment. So those are the types of insights that Ray will, Ray Ray will immediately be able to spot those differences. Um, And I think that's, that's always an interesting dynamic, right? Like you, you're always keen for those sort of insights uh, when you're a manufacturer in this sort of situation. So it remains to be seen how much difference that's going to make, but uh, they're certainly head down to end this 2.2 liter era um, with a bang. And, and that, you know, I I think that all of that also applies to the development that's currently going on with the 2.4 liter formula. So Honda and Chevy both are working flat out right now. to get prepared with this hybrid, the hybrid formula, also the 2.2, the 2.4 liter formula. There's a lot going on um, for both manufacturers because of the, some tweaks and iterations that have happened on the hybrids, just strictly on the hybrid side of things, which obviously is is sort of spec for the manufacturers, like it's fixed. Um, That's, those things have put the development curve for all of it as a package later in the year than either of them anticipated. So there's going to be a lot going on. There's a lot on the manufacturer's plates right now, uh, heading towards, heading towards the 2022 season, both with an eye on, you know, maximizing what they're doing on track with their teams this year and looking forward to the upcoming, uh, new formula starting in 2023. Yeah, there's basically no carryover in parts between the two engines, is there? So it's uh, it's a it's a almost a totally uh, separate effort, really, isn't it? From from the manufacturers to to kind of continue the development work they're doing on the current engine, but also develop the the next one as well. So I think the the thing I'm encouraged by with with Chevrolet is that I don't necessarily think that they've ignored the the sum of parts approach. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. I don't think it wouldn't be fair to say that they ignored it, but there's definitely more focus on this 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 approach which i think honda have nailed and, and been really good at over the past few years and that's just we we've seen a shift towards you know the simulation coming in-house with with chevrolet and honda we've seen you know the the work that's done on the wind tunnels and and all that kind of stuff i think we've seen just a movement towards i think it's naturally caused by the fact that there's not a, as you mentioned there's not a whole lot of development we can do with these current cars so the the manufacturers are all uh, are expanding and looking for different ways to whether it's the packaging or, or the way the engine's integrated into the car to, to to make the whole car go faster through what they're doing with the engine. So it's not necessarily just about horsepower and torque. It's I think there's been a, a real shift recently more towards trying to, to develop the whole car in tune with the engine to really get the maximum sort of package out of it. And I think what that shows is that Chevrolet really are keen to, to, to take that even more seriously than perhaps they have in the past. And with them going... Um, you know, with Honda and Chevrolet going hammer and tongs 
to, to, to try and win this title. I think uh, there's no doubt that it's going to be a serious one for both of them. They'll both want the bragging rights of being the, the last manufacturer to, to win with this engine and this rule set. I also think just as a, as a bit of insight, it's interesting to consider that at Honda, part and it just it reminded me of it while you were talking about these sort of different different philosophies that at Honda everything is done by HPD so everything is in-house in one place the engine stuff the vehicle dynamics all of it so it's sort of one engineering organization that is taking on all of these things which naturally sort of lends itself towards there being a, a more more um, connected view of the different parts at with Chevrolet, you've got Chevrolet itself, which has a motorsport division that's overseeing the IndyCar program. You've got Pratt and Miller, which is very, you know, it's very closely, it's, it's in essence, the motorsport program for Pratt and Miller may as well just be an in-house general motors motorsport entity, but still a separate entity, like with different, you know, a different employee base and all that kind of stuff, a contractor, uh, Ilmore operates in very much the same way. So, just if you look at it, just in terms of the corporate structures of these dynamics, um, you know, Chevrolet, you know, and, and it's, it's worth noting that like during the arrow kit era where you really had a significant involvement from Pratt and Miller and Ilmore and all of these different parts, I mean, you could, you could pretty clearly say that Chevy had the advantage in terms of just outright total performance on the average over that period in time. Um, but I think now that Honda has come out the other side of that, they've definitely made some changes, I think, in terms of how they look at all of this stuff, look at all of the parts. Um, they have a little bit of an easier structure to, to take, it, take it all sort of in-house and, and make sure it's all connected and make sure everything's correlated and validated. Uh, so everything you said is, is, a, is a really good point. And I think particularly as we look to this next gen where you've got hybridization and you've got altogether a much more complicated package um, that does inevitably include teams and drivers in a totally different way. And uh, you know, the, the sort of chassis dynamics and vehicle dynamics of the car and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think that's, it's a very fair point to say that Honda's, Honda's had a little bit of an advantage just in terms of how they're set up to be able to tackle that uh, in the last few years. We'll switch from something that's kind of come into its end in, in terms of this engine package and, and switch to, to something that's just starting and, and look at the rookie drivers. So we've got five rookies this year. We've got Callum Eilat at Huncos. We've got Christian Lungard, who we mentioned at Ray Hall. We've got David Malukas at Dale Coyne Racing. We've got Devlin Francesco at Andretti Autosport. And we've also got Kyle Kirkwood at AJ4 Enterprises. So uh, also, as previously mentioned, Jimmy Johnson and Roma Grosjean will be rookies at the Indy 500 too. So that's quite interesting. JR, have you got a pick for, for rookie of the year? And have you got a pick for the Indy 500 rookie of the year as well? And if you have, tell us why. Hmm. I, You know, it's, it's actually a pretty tough one. Uh, among all the rookies, there's such a it's it's interesting because I guess at a glance, uh, and I gotta say I don't I don't know all I don't know any of these guys personally at a really in-depth level. Like I've I obviously know their stat sheets and have followed their careers, but it's just like looking at this list of names: Callum Christian, David Devlin, and Kyle Kirkwood at Foyt. 
the two that really stand out to me as like the most interesting ones to watch this year, Kyle Kirkwood and Callum Eilat, just because they seem like from where they've come from, they're sort of top of the heap. Um, you know, these are both guys that, you know, sort of there's, there's nowhere else for them to be, but racing at a top level, like there's no argument to be made that they could have, or should have been doing anything other than at least racing in, in, in an Indy car at this point. Um, and so like Kyle Kirkwood's just, been wreaking havoc in the you know lower formulas in in the united states callum you could say the same thing in europe uh, the other guys all have had varying degrees of success at those same at those same levels but not quite to that extent but when you really consider where they're at they're at the two sort of lowest performing or or uh you know the the organizations that have the most question marks in terms of what they can bring to the table for this year, at least, um, where they're at. So, and, and, and without a lot of help, Colin's obviously just flying, flying solo at, at Hunkos and, uh, Kyle has some teammates at Foyt, but, you know, not with any more sort of relevant experience or success or past success than he has. So in, in all likelihood, he's kind of steering the bus, in that situation. So if you're asking, you know, who I'm kind of most interested to see, you know, when I think it can click, it's those two guys. Uh, who do I think is going to be rookie of the year at the end of the year? Honestly, man, I don't really know. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you just look at the, the quality of their teammates and the potential quality of the cars. And you kind of, I, I sort of look at Christian and, and Devlin DeFrancesco at, at, at Andretti as having, sort of the best situations to operate from, you know, definitely higher resource teams. Those guys can show up at Indy and probably be fast right away because the teams are sorted. We know that's a double point situation, like it or hate it, you know, whatever. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of leaning towards giving my guy Kyle Kirkwood a, a nod on this just because I do really think that he's a, a super impressive and special talent and ready for this moment. And seems like he's really got the right attitude to, to be where he's at right now, but uh, it's, it's anybody's guess. And we we've just recently seen almost a full field preview uh, at Sebring David Malukas P2 to Colton Herta. So, you know, I mean, that's, that to me is like Sebring is Sebring, but who knows, you know, they might be awesome at coin. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to tell a very going to be a competitive competitive field and awesome that there's so many young rookies, like legit kind of old school rookie class, you know, not, uh, not Jimmy and Roman, uh, you know, and, and Scott McLaughlin, like we had last year looking ahead to the 500. I, for me, it's a toss up between both of those guys. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to see Jimmy have an awesome race. So, I mean, I mean, I know that, uh, just kind of being being around him and uh, and knowing a little bit of how you know following his trajectory and knowing how much how excited he is for being able to kind of mix his experience from last year with his expertise you know in oval racing for his career i think that's maybe a slightly it's a, it's at least a more interesting combination than roma 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 feels a little bit more like when fernando came over you know, that it's just a matter of how much, how quickly can he adapt to, uh, you know, racing, racing at the 500. And I think that their strengths and weaknesses as drivers and where they've come from and all that kind of stuff 
play completely different roles for the two of them. So that, that even for me is, is hard, but I'm going to give the, I'm going to give the nod to Jimmy because I think that, you know, the 500 now is such, I even think about when Kurt Busch came over and did it, that he didn't have the outright speed. He did not have, he, he didn't maybe feel quite confident enough to, you know, really stick his nose places that were, you know, that, that guys with a little bit more experience and a little bit more confidence and comfort with the cars would. Uh, but the 500 is just, it's a long race. Like it's an event that you got to get to the end of the race to be there, to be anywhere basically. And I think Jimmy, that, that plays to Jimmy's strengths throughout his career. Like he's a closer. So um, I think that he's, he's definitely got, if, if I, if you, if the question was like, which one of those guys has a better shot to win, it might be Roman just because he's got a little bit of that. He's he's, I think he'll be a little more comfortable in an open wheel car going that fast, you know, doing all that stuff. But, um, the odds that one finishes higher than the other, I might give that nod, nod to Jimmy. I think with Roman as well, it's about blending that aggression we've seen him have with, you know, knowing how to, to race the 500, uh, you know, for its entirety. So, you know, we see a lot of guys uh, who, are, who are aggressive in the IndyCar series and Roman's definitely been one of them. And we've been really impressed with his overtaking skill, especially, uh, you know, in uh, there was some really good passes we saw over the course of last season, wasn't there, where he was just so aggressive on the brakes and it's something that they're, they're trying to incorporate into Andretti's setup, such was it uh, important to Roman that, that that remained the case. But Obviously, breaking isn't a big thing at the 500, but the the aggression is, and I hope that Roman's able to blend this, um, you know, this uh, kind of it's like a fire in him, isn't it? That that, he, that he's desperate to to win his first IndyCar race, and and really the Indy 500 would obviously be a perfect place to do that. But um, yeah, I'd like to see him sort of learn over the course of the month of May, and 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 just uh, consider that uh, the 500 isn't always about. Um, you know, going all guns blazing halfway through. It's uh, it's about being able to close at the end. So that'll be interesting to see. I think for me, uh, the the answer to the to the two questions, the rookie of the year and the Indy 500 rookie of the year, are going to be the same. I think it's going to be Christian Lungard. I think Christian was so impressive with his uh, Indianapolis debut last year, where he qualified fourth. I know he slipped back in the race, but I think with a bit of knowledge of the tire and, and understanding a bit more about how IndyCar races work, I think he'll come to the fore. I think he's one of the people who is in a, a really good position team-wise, which is what you touched on, um, you know, just talking about the, just literally the people who are going to finish higher up in the championship. We've seen some absolutely phenomenal rookies come into the series in the, in the past few years and go into smaller teams. And, and yes, they've had, you know, some good results, but haven't turned that into a consistent season. You know, Alex Palo being the perfect example, who's just won the championship. So <laughs> he's a pretty good example. And I think uh, the, the rookie of the year is going to come from, you know, one of the guys at the the, the more established teams, uh, David Mukas, I'm really looking forward to, to see how he gets on just based on how close he ran Kyle Kirkwood last year and, you know, just how bullishly impressive he was last season out of nowhere, basically. I think a lot of people were really surprised by what he was able to bring to the table. And yeah, I thought he was, he was absolutely phenomenal, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with, uh, I'm going to stick with Lungard at Ray Hall. And I think for the 500, I think Ray Hall have had a fantastic package there over the past few years. I don't think that's going to change this year. And just knowing Christian from his junior single-seater career, I know there's not a sort of ounce of trepidation in his body and he'll be well up to the challenge of heading into turn one at the Indy 500. Um, I don't think that's going to be something that, that really um, 
obviously it'll be something that shocks him when it happens for the first time in in uh, in the first few days of practice. But when we actually get to the race, I don't think he'll be uh, overawed with the occasion or, or anything like that. So I'm going to go for him, which I know is a bit of a an outside choice when you've got the likes of Jimmy Johnson and, and Romain Grosjean doing the 500 as a as a rookie. But yeah, that's just how I uh, that's how I see it it's playing out. Yeah, cool. Uh, well, and I, and I got to say, I didn't really think about. I was thinking just between Jimmy and, and Rob for for uh, yeah, rookie of the year, but I think it's it's a totally fair point when you think about you know the and and when it comes down to it, I mean you know as I felt like as I was listening to myself talk about you know how those guys compare to each other, Roma and, and Jimmy, you know the the race these days it is just harder. You know, I mean it's it's one of those things that definitely if you can have good pit stops and be on the right side of the strategy and all that kind of stuff, it's possible just to find yourself up at the front of the race, but if you at any point have to work your way through the field, it's a difficult thing to do. That's really high commitment. So I do think that in some respect, that's however that factors into which one of these guys comes out on top, that is going to be something that you, you have to have a pretty high degree of confidence in knowing what you're doing, knowing where to place the car. You don't, you don't have like a lot of opportunities just fall in your lap at Indy anymore. Um, and that's, that's been the case basically since this, kind of universal kit that we're using right now was introduced in 2018. Um, it's gotten a little, a little easier with some of the tweaks to tires and the rest of it, but, um, you know, it's, it's going to be something to look out for, I think. And, and all of these guys, you'll get a little bit of a preview for it, at, at Texas, not that Texas and India are particularly similar in terms of, you know, the way you set the car up or how the car feels or any of that kind of stuff. But, um, the, the difficulty of passing and racing and that dynamic is much more similar at those two places. I mean, I'm thinking in, in, for in, in context for Roma after running gateway last year, you know, Texas is going to be much more like what these guys will deal with at the 500, just because it's a low down force super speedway race period. Um, so we'll get a little preview of that heading in. So Let's move on. Sort of the the title battle is really the the thing that we're all thinking about, as as well as Alex Blue trying to defend his championship. We'll certainly have Pato Award, Colton Herta, Joseph Newgarden, and Scott Dixon vying for the title as they did last year. That's without mentioning the likes of Alexander Rossi, Roman Grosjean, Marcus Ericsson, Felix Rosenquist, and potentially more than that being in the mix uh, with a with a small step into the fray. It's really, I mean, honestly, it's really insane how stacked, how many, how many teams have leveled up? Like how many teams are in the window now of just being a, a half step away from, from getting there and how stacked those teams are, how many good drivers are at good teams. It's, it's just, it's awesome to see that in the IndyCar series. Now, both of those things need to be true to be in the mix. Unlike I think a lot of other championships. So Jack, curious who your money is on for the title. Uh, are there any chances in the offseason or on any of the changes in the offseason that make you think one of these drivers is more or less likely to excel or one of these organizations taking enough of a step that that sort of vaults a driver into the mix? Well, I'll second what you said at first about the the, the level playing field. Um, the, the names you mentioned there, there was nine of them. So <laughs> to, have, to have nine preseason title contenders, pretty much all of them, you know, with a really strong possibility of winning the championship. I mean, I know there's other championships out there that have that, but there's not many at this level and that's really impressive. So that's a, a cool starting point. I think for me, I'm, you know, th this is like pulling hairs, isn't it? It's basically impossible to try and predict who's actually going to do it. But um, I, I like Scott Dixon for this year, actually. Um, 
you know, history tells us that after a year where he's not quite nailed everything, he comes back really strong. And uh, I think he's going to be a, a real contender in, in 2022. I think he's seen where his kind of weaknesses lay in, in the last season. And, you know, saying that his, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but his average finish was 0.13 worse than Alex Pelo. So I think with a, a different 500 last year, obviously Dixon was on pole and, and could have, you know, if he'd fulfilled that and at least finished in the top five, then his championship could have been a lot different. But the problem with his season last year was that he wasn't regularly getting on the podium and challenging for race wins, um, especially on some of the road courses, which is where he's identified one of his main weaknesses, which is tyre preparation. And that was one of the things I'd mentioned earlier in the podcast about him learning from Alex Pelo and Marcus Ericsson, perhaps their European junior single seat careers, helping them to to get those Firestone tyres in, in a better window on, on those low grip tracks. So that's something that Scott's been working on. But yeah, historically, he's always bounced back strongly. Um, and yeah, I think he's going to be a real contender. Very interested to see Colton Herter because as we've also discussed on the podcast before, I think both of us have been very impressed by how he learns from his errors and his mistakes and, and comes back stronger each year. So I don't know really where he, he comes back stronger from last season because last year was just phenomenal. And it might sound stupid to say that for someone who eventually wasn't in the championship hunt, but he had so much bad luck over the course of the season, which we kind of mentioned on our, our top 10 podcast at the end of last year, didn't we, about how all of those kind of reliability issues or, or tiny errors kind of added up and, and just took his season away from him pretty much. But, um, you know, there was... There was no other driver who was able to 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 use one of your phrases, JR, to bring the heat like he did uh, on certain weekends, especially like St. Pete and and the last kind of three races of the season. Really, he was he was pretty phenomenal as well. So, uh, if if I'm if I'm if I'm kind of heeding to to some of the the kind of favourite talk, I know a lot of people are calling out Holton, Colton Herter and, and think that he's going to be the one to do it. I think he is a very good chance that that he could be right there, and if he's managed to to produce a bit more consistency this year. Um, I think, I think he's going to be um, maybe my, uh, my other pick who I would um, kind of have as a, a secondary one. What about you, JR? Who are you looking at? Yeah, I think that it's for me, Colton is the guy to watch this year in, in looking at, in taking a closer look at the end of last season at his record over the course of the season, just the fact that he was so superior in qualifying which for some reason uh, over the course of the year, it, it didn't stand. It didn't occur to me that he was that much better than literally everybody um, in terms of his average qualifying performance. It just, it maybe it just became so normal to see him just running it, you know, finishing the top five. And, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of time, a lot of situations where he was P2 in, in races where you care a lot about who's P1. So that sort of flies under the radar or something. But when I really think about his year last year, like what does he need to do to come through on that? Like if they'd had a, he had a couple of mechanical failures that totally screwed him out of finishes that in, in situations that like other guys, I feel like didn't really have, you know, where he was running, he was going to finish in the top five after qualifying in the top five at, I don't know, Texas. There was, there was more than one scenario where that was the case. Mid Ohio um, gateway. Yeah. Right. Like it was just, it was just kind of like he was, it, there was it, absolutely no fault of his own he's gonna finish well there's no question about it he's not in a position where he's like under stress he's not under any kind of like duress from a situational perspective 
any of that. He's just got to like get to the end of the race space. Like if he just cruises to the end of the race, um, he was probably our champion last year. If those things go a little bit differently. And then in addition to that, you mentioned that you know, he made a couple of missed a couple of like key errors or mistakes that just stood out a little bit more. Everybody's making mistakes all season long. He made a couple that just stood out to us a little bit more because they were, they were the types of things that maybe if he hadn't have done them or they hadn't happened when they happened, that he's more in the overall title hunt, you know, like they were the types of scenarios that just made that, made that shift. Um, I think kind of to, to talk a little bit about your, uh, the comment that you made about it. I don't think he has to do that much. Like if he just has the same type of season and they have a few less things go wrong and he, he's going to be a little better in those scenarios where he made small mistakes. Like he's going to understand he they're there. I'm sure that he knows for himself between he and Nathan and his dad, Brian on the stand and whatever, like those are easy things for him to clean up. Um, he's the guy out of a lot of this group that I feel like you could just have, like he could have run away with it last year if things had gone a little bit differently. And I think that that's possible He's the only guy to me that stands out that that's possible heading into this season. So that's why he's, I think my pick and the most interesting guy to watch here. I also think that it just, it needs to be said that we can't discount Alex below going back to back because he just, he, he, he did everything that you could possibly ask for a guy in his position to do. He did it with a, a, a seeming relative ease and uh i just i think between he and scott it's like you said sort of splitting hairs at the same team like they go about things in a slightly different way they're both learning from each other they're both gaining by each other being on the same squad um but i i, I just i i want to make sure that i've hedged my own <laughs> my own bets on this by uh, by not ignoring the fact that he was really impressive last year We've picked out the key reason why he can repeat. It's because he's so consistent, just like Scott Dixon. So I guess we've got this kind of camp. We shouldn't rule out Joseph Newgarden as a, a major contender this year. Obviously, go back and listen to the pod last week to, to learn a, a few things about how he's feeling about his season and, and how everything's shaping up. But you've got this kind of Alex Pillow, Joseph Newgarden, Scott Dixon kind of you know, proven that they're able to deliver this consistency and, and just crush people by it, You know, take the oxygen away by just being so consistently in the top five or the top ten. Um, that's what's you know been the foundation of of their championships. But then you also you've got you've got Colton, and I think we should address Pato at this point as well, Jr. Because you know I, I think Pato and Colton are so similar in many ways that they're just able to 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 they've got this just ability to drive past whatever the car's giving them. And I, I feel like Pato might be in a similar situation to what you were describing with Colton, where a few things go differently and the season turns out uh, a lot better for, for Pato, even, even though it, you know, it, it went, it went well from anyway. And obviously he was taken out of the last race and, and arguably should have been second in the championship. That's a, you know, that's a mute point now and, and that's gone. But I think what's, what's so impressive is that Pato was able to deliver that season when, you know, he's got this amazing teammate in Felix Rosenquist who's struggled so much to drive the car. And, you know, clearly the, the, the noise coming out of that team is that the car is fast, but very difficult to drive and very difficult to keep in the window, very difficult to be consistent with it. And, you know, sure, every driver wants a, a quick car. And if you're, if you're dealing with some, some downsides, then sometimes you'll, you'll take that. But I think there's been 
a concerted effort from the team to try and make this car easier to drive. I think Juan Pablo Montoya's comments after Laguna Seca testing, you know, pre-season last year was a big one. Um, when he when he saw Pato Award steering trace and said, you know, it should be like this. <laughs> Yeah. When when someone if like KPM's Pablo, telling you that, like yeah. you got issues. Yeah. Yeah. You've got especially when we know how aggressive he likes to drive a car as well. So <laughs> I think he's like the key person in this situation to kind of describe what the what that car is like. So I think we we throw him in, in the same camp as Colton in the sense of two guys who are just able to to drive past what the car's giving them uh, and just show this amazing natural ability, which of course isn't Maybe not as a maybe it isn't as effective as as a, a Newgard and Dixon Polo kind of consistency approach, but what it does mean is that if they are able to bring just that little bit more consistency, whether that comes from their driving or whether that comes from the car that they're given by the team or whether that's the team's performances as well, uh, things like in the pits, you know, if they can bring that added bit of consistency, then it makes them such a, a dangerous contender where they can go and rip off three or four wins and and really put themselves in the hunt. Yeah, I think uh, one thing is for sure that, and I'm excited by this just saying it, that we are going to see some incredible performances from maybe all of these guys, certainly some of these guys over the course of the year. And uh, I can't wait to, to get it started. Last year was just so epic to see as, as incredibly talented and top-heavy this field was that you still got to see some of these guys occasionally just completely wax everybody uh, is, is just, it's awesome. So um, looking forward to that again this year. Hopefully that gives you a nice flavor of the key storylines going in 2022. And of course we start the action at St. Pete this upcoming weekend. So please don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform of choice. And if you have a question about anything IndyCar related or, you know, whatever, if it's a little beyond that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do heading into this year. Let us know. Uh, <laughs> you can fire us off an email. You can send Jack an email. Don't, don't send me any emails, but you can reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, certainly Jack's Jack's open there as well. We we'll back next week to see who won the first race. Check it out. Uh, give everything a rundown from the opening weekend and look at all the storylines uh, surrounding it heading forward. 